It's our final week of our series called Preaching Pixels, in which we've been diving into some family films and kind of pulling out, teasing out what kind of biblical truths might be hiding within those. And uh, I've been having a lot of fun with this series, but I'm wondering, have you guys enjoyed the series? Has this been a fun one for you, huh? Show of hands, anybody? Anybody? And okay, all right, there we go. We got a couple of, we got a lot of you. Well, well done. And uh, at home, raise your hands too. I can't see you, but God can, so raise your hand. And uh, I want to know what your favorites have been so far. So week one, we talked about the Lion King. Anyone in here like, yeah, Lion King, talking about our identity right on. Yeah, I got, I got one or two back there. And then the second one was Moana, when we talked about calling and being called out to the sea, but actually called out our purpose from God. I got a couple there. Last week was the Incredibles. We talked about what it meant to be a family on mission. We got a few of those. Who is really hoping for something good today? Huh? Anybody? And then who of you are like, I'm so ready for this to be done. I don't watch movies. I am sick of talking about movies. Forget it. Well, after today, you can let it go. We're talking about Frozen today. In case you couldn't tell from that terrible joke and from that awesome singing earlier. I didn't know I was married to Elsa. It was beautiful. Well done. You didn't know that's my wife who sang. Okay. So, <laughs> we're talking about Frozen today, and we're going to pull some biblical themes out of it. So, if you haven't seen the movie Frozen, here you go. This is a quick summary. I'm probably going to miss some things, but here you go. Elsa and Anna are sisters in the kingdom of Arendelle. Now, as a child, Elsa discovers she has powers to create ice and, and snow. And after an accident as a child, her parents teach her to suppress her powers, to never use them. And what happens is she becomes completely isolated. She's captured by her shame, her guilt, and the fear of her powers. Now their parents die in a boating accident, and as Elsa becomes old enough, she becomes the queen of Arendelle. At her coronation celebration, she accidentally uses her powers out of her fear and shame and embarrassment, then she runs away. But as she did that, she ends up freezing the entire place of Arendelle, the kingdom of Arendelle, becomes frozen and all that stuff. Now Anna, her sister, she's very confused, but she longs to help Elsa, so she goes off in search of her. And when she finds her, there's another tragic accident where Elsa sends magical ice into Elsa's heart, okay? Or Anna's heart, excuse me, still with me? Then an ice salesman, his reindeer, and an enchanted snowman take Anna to some magic trolls who claim that only an act of true love will thaw Anna's frozen heart. Okay? Sounds really weird when you try and summarize Disney movies, by the way. Elsa's then captured. She's lied to. She's told that she killed Anna, and she's about to be killed herself by the bad guy. Should have known he was a bad guy. His name is Hans. Yeah. Yeah. Hans. Wasn't that so bad? Because you think he's a good guy, and then he's a bad guy. Oh, Hans. But then Anna saves the day. Saves Elsa's life. Arendelle thaws. All is well. That's the broad strokes of it. And I have no idea what happens in Frozen 2, because I haven't seen it. Something about a spirit. I'll get around to it eventually. But, uh, so there you go. That's Frozen. And I need to be honest and transparent with you all. I really love The Lion King. I love Moana a great deal, and Incredibles is one of my favorite movies. I don't really enjoy Frozen all that much, okay? I'm just going to name that. It's so cool if you like it, and that's, that's good. More power to you. I don't love this movie, but I do love one character and one major part of it. 
The character I love is Anna. Oh, Anna, she is awesome. And the problem is she gets none of the attention, okay? Every little girl wants to be Elsa for Halloween. Hardly any Annas out there. And okay, Elsa has a cool braid and she can make ice and all that, but think about Anna. She's the real hero of the story. She's selfless. She's forgiving. She's hopeful. She leads with love. She sacrifices everything in the name of love. It's the character I love. And the part of the movie that I love is that it's sacrificial love that saves the day. Anna's act of true love, actually, is what did it. You see, Elsa, uh, well, I should say this. Um, her heart, right, got struck by Elsa, and it was, she was freezing, and she was kind of turning into to ice, you could say. And it's, it, once that fully took hold, that's it for Anna. But as she is going to try and find Elsa, Hans is coming to kill Elsa with his sword. Anna almost fully ice, stands in front of Elsa, puts her hand up. She fully turns to ice. Han's sword hits her hand. Sword breaks. And that was the act of true love that ultimately saved Anna and saved Elsa. Elsa says this to Anna after that exchange when, she, when Anna thaws again. Elsa says, you sacrificed yourself for me? And Anna, she just shrugs. I love you. That's her response. You sacrificed yourself for me? I love you. Anna's heart which was frozen by the actions of her sister, could have been bitter, could have turned her away from love. She could have embraced hate or judgment. She could have let Hans strike Elsa down, but instead her love conquered all, stopped Hans from killing Elsa, and in so doing, saved her frozen heart. Because true love is sacrificial. True love can melt away all anger, all malice, all bitterness, all pain. And at the conclusion of this imaginary tale of Frozen, Elsa realizes that it wasn't control or shame or sheer power that could unfreeze anything. None of that was powerful enough. The only thing powerful enough to make everything right was love. Having received that sacrificial love for herself, Elsa then feels and embraces that very love and extends it out to all. That's the thing that finally thaws all of Arendelle. She realized that love was the answer. Huh, I wonder what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Jesus Christ sacrificed everything for us out of the depth of his love for us. We know this because his true word tells us in 1 John 4 that God is love. It's not just a part of him. It's who he is. And we also know this because God sacrifices. Just think about it. In creating us, he sacrificed. He willingly entered into a relationship with us. We often refer to this as a long-suffering relationship that God willingly entered into with us, with his children who often choose sin over him. And yet, God, who is love, walks with us throughout all of our lives and all of our days and throughout all of eternity he has created a path to remove the pain and the hurt and the death that all is a result of sin. Consider the sacrificial love of God as we read in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. 
Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. No, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Oh, what great love! What great sacrifice! There's no way we can ever truly and fully fathom the depth of this type of love because it can only come from the one who is holy, the one who came down. The best we can do in response to this type of love is to fully commit our lives to loving and serving the one who chose to love and serve us. That's what we're talking about today, about being grounded in love. So if you've ever been to church, if you have any inkling of what Christianity is about, you know that love stands at the center of our faith. You can't have faith without love. For if God is love, you can't know God if you don't have love. We may even think or say, well, of course we know we're supposed to love God. And of course, I do love God. That's what happens when we give our lives to him. We get overwhelmed by the sense of of love and awe of what he's done. And so we say, God, I love you so much. I want you, not me, you to be the Lord of my life. And I believe you can forgive my sins. But this week, as I was preparing, I was reading, I was taken again by the encounter of Jesus and his disciple Peter on the shore after Peter's denial of Jesus, after Jesus' death, after he rose again. Where Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Hear this account once more from John 21, starting at verse 15. When the disciples and Jesus had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. So Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him that third time, do you love me? So he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. There's a lot going on in this passage as Jesus reinstates Peter into his high and holy calling to lead the disciples forward in Jesus' name and begin the early church. But when we consider this and put ourselves in the story, I think a lot of time our answers, like Peter's, in our brokenness, in our hurt, in our woundedness, in our defensiveness, we could say, well, yeah, of course, Jesus, I love you. But then we reflect on our life, and we reflect on our prayer life, 
and our scripture reading life and the things we say and the choices we make and we start to wonder, how much do I really love God? Can we together get past our own normal sense of defensiveness that naturally comes up within us and collectively consider that question today? Jesus asks, do you love me? I want to read uh, a couple pages from this book. This is called In the Name of Jesus. This is by an author, a theologian, a, a professor, a priest by the name of Henry Nouwen. Some of you will be pleased to hear and learn that he's Dutch. It's your people. Not my people, but, you know, our people. Yeah. I say a few pages, but don't worry. It's a big typesetting. It's a tiny book. There's even a whole page that's just a picture. But he's, he's, he's wrestling with the same idea of that question, do you love me? So take these words in and, and hear what God might have to say to you through them. Do you love me? We have to hear that question as being central to all of our Christian ministry because it's the question that can allow us to be at the same time irrelevant and truly self-confident. Look at Jesus. The world did not pay any attention to him. He was crucified and put away. His message of love was rejected by a world in search of power, efficiency, and control. But there he was, appearing with wounds in his glorified body to a few friends who had eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. This rejected, unknown, wounded Jesus simply asked, Do you love me? Do you really love me? Love me. He whose only concern had been to announce the unconditional love of God had one question to ask Do you love me? Now, the question's not how many people take you seriously or how much are you going to accomplish? Can you show me some results? But are you in love with Jesus? Perhaps another way of putting this question would be Do you know the incarnate God? In our world of loneliness and despair, there's an enormous need for men and women who know the heart of God, a heart that forgives, that cares, that reaches out and wants to heal. In that heart, there is no suspicion, no vindictiveness, no resentment, and not a tinge of hatred. It's a heart that wants only to give love and receive love in response. It is a heart that suffers immensely because it sees the magnitude of human pain and the great resistance to trusting the heart of God who wants to offer consolation and hope. The Christian leader of the future is the one who truly knows the heart of God as it has become flesh, a heart of flesh in Jesus. Knowing God's heart means consistently, radically, and very concretely announcing and reveal that God is love and only love, and that every time fear, isolation, or despair begin to invade the human soul, it is not something that comes from God. This unconditional and unlimited love is what the evangelist John calls God's first love. Let us love, he says, because God loved us first. The love that often leaves us doubtful, frustrated, angry, resentful, that's the second love. That is to say the affirmation, affection, or sympathy, or encouragement and support we receive from our parents, our teachers, our spouses, and our friends. Because we all know how limited, broken, and very fragile that love is. 
behind the many expressions of the second love, there's always a chance of rejection, of withdrawal, of punishment, of blackmail, of violence, and even hatred. Often, it seems that beneath the pleasantries of daily life, there are many gaping wounds that carry such names as abandonment, betrayal, rejection, rupture, and loss. These are all the shadow side of the second love and reveal the darkness that never completely leaves the human heart. And finally, the radical good news is that the second love, it's just a broken reflection of the first love. That first love that is offered to us by a God in whom there are no shadows. Knowing the heart of Jesus and loving him are the same thing. And when we live in the world with that knowledge, we cannot do other than bring the healing and the reconciliation and new life and hope of Jesus Christ wherever we go. God loved us first. That love is pure. That love is perfect. But in the hustle and bustle of this world, we are privy to the wounds that come from the loves of the world, these lesser loves. And we confuse those pains, those hurts, the problem that, all the problematic nature that comes from this broken lesser love with God's pure and perfect and sacrificial love. And when we do that, when we twist it, when we confuse it, we can lose sight of the wonder and the immensity and the depth of true love that is found in Christ alone. To know the heart of Jesus is to love him. God's love is the answer. You may say and think how elementary, how basic, how, how simple and repetitive for me to, to preach on the importance of loving God. But friends, this is the real deal, the core of our faith. And boy, I was reminded again this week, I don't have this all figured out yet. So I'm guessing you don't either. But God's love is the answer. It's the answer to what we've been talking about this whole series. Like way back in week one, it's the answer to knowing your identity. And in week two, it's the answer to knowing and living out your calling. And last week, it is the answer to being a church that mimics Christ and is really worth its salt. Children or some adults may watch Frozen and say, Oh, I want to be like Elsa. She has a cool braid. She makes snowflakes and snowmen out of nothing. She overcomes her pain and her shame and her fear. She finds strength through the power of love. That's really cool, but it's in a movie, and so it seems impossible to grasp. Or others of us may watch Frozen, and if you're like me, say, I want to be like Anna, always defaulting back to love, to sacrifice and service overall, being selfless in all things, and putting others first in the name of love. Yeah, that's really cool, but it's in a movie, and it seems impossible to grasp. And then we read of the very real Jesus Christ who made himself human for us, being so humble to consider equality with God not even possible, even though that's who he was. 
And we see him sitting with his denier and meeting him with love and grace. And we're reminded again that Jesus Christ sits with us in our woundedness and our brokenness and meets us because that is the true love we already have. There is nothing impossible about it because it's already been found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is real. It is available to each and every one of us each and every single day. If you are still wrestling with your identity or you are still wrestling with your callings or your gifts or your purpose or you're unsure where you fit into the life of God's family to be on mission together, simply remember again the depth and the breadth of God's love for you. Because in his love, you will discover who you are. In his love, he will guide you forward to be who he made you to be. In his love, he will see you through the hardships of life. In his love, you will have a place in his family called to serve him in mission. So as we prepare to close this series, a couple questions for us to consider. And the first is this. What area of your life do you need to allow God's love in? Not to let it go, but to let love in. If you want to remember that, you can say, let love in for the win. All right? Got that? Let love in for the win. Where do you need to let love in? Maybe it's your identity. Maybe it's your calling. Maybe it is your place as a part of the family of God. Maybe it's in your own thoughts. Maybe it's in your words. Maybe it's in your actions. Maybe you need to let love into the pain you've been carrying or in the lies you've chosen to believe that come from the enemy or maybe in the wounds that have not yet healed and are still open. Where do you need to let love in? If you draw close to God, his word promises us he will draw close to you as you let love in. That is the love of Christ, but it's not just any type of love. It's a sacrificial love because there's nothing selfish about true love. It demands sacrifice. It requires letting go, okay? It requires saying no to things that seem good, but stand in the way of the things we have to say yes to that are kingdom things. As Jesus himself said in Luke 9, 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That is the path of sacrificial love. So the last question is this, where do you need to sacrifice a bit to let love flow more fully? Set the sacrifice, where do you let it go? What do you need to let go of? What is that thing you need to sacrifice? Because excuse me, sacrificial love means you give up your own idea of who you are and you step into your true identity in Christ. Sacrificial love means you give up your own idea of how you're supposed to live your life 
and you step forward into your high and holy and God-given calling, sacrificial love means you step out of your own comfort and your coziness and step forward again to serve in the name of Jesus as a part of his family on mission. We let go and we love because Christ saw us in our brokenness, in our hurt, in our pain, and he did not step away. He stepped toward, and God loved us. He loved first. So let us be like Christ by loving Christ and loving like Christ. May it be so for each one of us here today. To God be all glory, honor, and power. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we delight in the presence of your love. We delight again in who you are and that you've called us into an everlasting relationship with you. We delight that your love is sacrificial for without it, we would be lost to the powers of the enemy and sin. But God, though the enemy be great, you are even greater. You are holy, you are good, you are perfect, and your love conquers all. And your love, fear is casted out. In your love, we find hope and belonging and truth, for that's what we find in you. We thank you, God, that you meet us in our brokenness and guide us forward in the power of your Spirit. We ask boldly in Jesus' name that you meet us with your grace here today and show us that next step forward so that we may live into that love you have called for each of us today. To answer your question, Jesus, oh yes, we love you. Even when we fail to show you, even when we fail to say it, God, we would be lost without you. We love you with our whole hearts. May our lives reveal that truth here today in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.